Gracious Father, I pray that you would help us to grasp with our souls, with our hearts, the enormity of what Jesus bought for us through his death and his resurrection. That it was more than just a stripping away of, of our sin, but it was to give us something so big and so incomprehensible that we can barely even understand it. And I pray along those lines, Lord, that you would help us to see with our hearts what we can't yet see with our eyes. But Lord, we know that someday our faith shall receive sight and we will see firsthand with physical eyes the glory of who you are in your son. And I pray more than anything that that would be the one thing that we live for and long for is to be with you um, above all else and allow us the grace to hold on to these things in this life with an open grip, trusting you with them. So Lord, I pray that you would enable me to teach in a way that is true, in a way that is compelling, in a way that is honest. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So like all of you, maybe not all of you, but some of you, um, I don't really like to read the news, but I do, and I think most of us do because we should know what's going on, and, and I read from different places and you know, liberal media platforms and conservative because I don't think any platform ha is unbiased, right? So you kind of stick your fingers in different uh, media streams and try to figure out what's going on. And I find that if I can remember, no matter what I'm reading, that God is on the throne, I'm okay. If I forget that, then I go wonky. So last week, I was reading in the stream of NBC. And I came across this article that said, how our solar system, no, I got that wrong. How will our solar system end? Uh, uh, a distant planet offers hints. So with a title like that, how will our solar system end? How will, it didn't say how, how might it or how could it, but it said how will our solar system end? Well, I'm like, well, I gotta read this. So what is the good news of NBC have to say about the end of the world? And the the short of it is, they identified or found this, this planet that is about 6,000 light years away that's in our own galaxy, and apparently it's orbiting around a dead star called a uh, white dwarf, right? So there's this dead star that is one expanded, then contracted in on itself, doesn't have any light, and therefore the planet that's rotating around it also doesn't have light. Now, how they actually see it when it has no light, I don't know. But there's this planet orbiting a dead star. And their point is, this is what's going to happen to our solar system. It gives us a hint that someday our, our sun's going to expand as it starts to die, and then it's going to implode upon itself, stop to give light, and there will be some planets still orbiting a dark star. And this is a piece, a little excerpt of the article. I just wanted you to read with me the good news according to NBC. When the sun balloons outward in what's known as its red giant phase, it will likely obliterate Mercury and Venus and possibly Earth, said the lead author of the scientific study, Joshua Blackman, an astronomer at the University of Tasmania in Austria, Australia. The sun will have grown too hot for anything on Earth to survive well before then, and its giant red giant phase will cause lakes of lava, broken continents, and devastating blasts of intense ionization radiation, ionizing radiation, if it doesn't fragment our planet entirely, he said in an email. <laughs> I read that and I thought, man, that's just 
comforting to know. <laughs> the irony is that people sometimes look at the Bible and think, man, it kind of ends in a dark place. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a lake of fire for some. Um, well, according to this article, the whole thing ends in a lake of fire, right? It's like, and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of good news in it. Think about that for a second. That's the, that's the future of our planet according to a secular ideology. The lights go out. All of the human accomplishments and experiences and treasures, the paintings that have been painted, the music that's been composed, the poetry... The symphonies, the moments, the building, the toil, the labor, all that humans have done over the course of the last, I don't know how many millennia, just goes up in smoke. Up in smoke. Now, the Hebrew wisdom writers would say that that kind of an outlook, where we all eventually die and our planet dies and pretty much everything dies, they would say at the end of the day, without an ever after, that it's meaningless. Or, in the words of Solomon, vanity of vanities. It's a chasing after wind. If all, in the end, just dies. Like, what's the meaning of life? Is there an ultimate meaning of life, a purpose of life, an ultimate one? And the answer would be, according to NBC, the good news of NBC, the answer is no. One might say, well, can't we believe in an afterlife without God? Very hard to believe in an afterlife without God in the equation. We merely become the fruits of a biological process, which is the fruits of a random process. Then the question is, where does the spirit of man come from if there's no God? That immaterial part of us that you can't put under a microscope. Is it eternal? And if it is, where does it come from? Really hard to build a case for an afterlife with God, without God in the equation. That's the simple truth. That is the worldview of a secular concept world without God. It ends in darkness. You just got to face the fact. It ends in darkness. Even NBC gets that. The Christian worldview built upon the Bible and, and most importantly on the death and resurrection of Jesus is quite different. It offers hope, a big hope, an incomprehensible, indescribable hope, which connects really in, well, with what Adam said last week. And, we listened, by the way, uh, from Hawaii. Uh, don't judge. All right. We went, just the two of us. Um, we haven't done that in a long time. We went, just the two of us, and just had an amazing time together on the big island, never been there before. And we tuned in here. And we got to watch you guys worship and got to listen to Adam preach. And one of his points was about the hope of the gospel. And I thought, man, it's like the Holy Spirit organized all this. And I think he did. And how important it is for us to understand the hope of the gospel. It's not just looking past, but also looking future. Um, and let me just say, by way of just reiterating the importance of what he said, he talked about rehearsing the gospel every day. I'm telling you firsthand, I have to do that for myself. It's my only source of strength to be a pastor, is just to go back to the well of the gospel over and over again. But it includes this future dimension. And we sometimes forget that. We kind of truncated or we downsized the gospel, thinking, well, Jesus came to, um, to clean my morally dirty laundry, my life. He was going to make me white as snow, which he did. 
Or he came to die on a cross to give me a get-out-of-jail get card or get-out-of-judgment card. And that's a piece of why he came to sacrifice himself as our substitute on the cross and take the wrath of God so we don't have to. But it's also bigger than that. Like, to what end? And that's where the future comes in. And that's where the hope comes in. And, and all of us need that kind of hope. I need that kind of hope. You need that kind of hope. Especially as we watch loved ones approach the end of their lives and ourselves at some point. So John has these, this final vision. <laughs> Probably to your comfort, all of the judgment passages are gone. Done. Judgment has been passed, all the wrongs have been made right. In this final chapter, 21, 22, he has this vision of the future, of the new creation. In three parts, he focused first on the new creation, and then we're going to look at next week the new city, or I'm going to call it the new temple. And then he's going to finish with the new garden. It's described with brushstrokes of the Garden of Eden. And it's, it's a beautiful, amazing, wonderful vision to conclude the Bible with. We're looking at verses 1 through 8, looking at this concept of the new Christian, which is the hope that Christ died for, to give us. And I, quite, quite frankly, think that John is trying to describe the indescribable, the incomprehensible, the incommunicable in this. So let me explore it through five little aspects of this creation, because I want you to understand it. Because sometimes when we think of heaven, we think of cumulus clouds, Right? We don't really know what to think of heaven, and there's books been written about people who've passed on for a few minutes and then come back. It's like, but this is the infallible word about heaven, so this is the one we need to listen to, okay? Even though it's communicated through symbol. So the first part of it, after seeing all the judgment passed in the lake of fire, um, John sees with fresh eyes a vision of the new creation. Like the end of the Bible starts very similar to the beginning of the Bible. The beginning, the very first sentence where God is the subject of the first verb is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth means everything. So here we are in chapter 21. John opens his eyes and God reveals a vision where he sees. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first earth and the first heaven passed away, and the sea was no more. A recreation of all things. That's his point. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, let's just pause on that for a second. Someone might ask, uh, why doesn't God just like patch up the old one? You know, like a fixer-upper, <laughs> flip-or-flop kind of thing. You know, there's just got to apply some Bondo and maybe some spackling and paint it up a little bit and get rid of the rising sea levels and, you know, calm the storms and the tsunamis and everything would be perfect. Why doesn't he just renovate the old one? For two reasons. One is the creation in which we now exist is by very nature transient. That is, it is subject to decay in its very nature. Uh, Paul put it this way in Romans 8, in one of the most important chapters about the new creation and about the earth and how it currently is in bondage. He says that um, it is in bondage to corruption or bondage to decay. It's been subjected to futility, that pointlessness, because it just keeps winding down. 
doesn't stay the same. It erodes, it rusts, corruptible. And every part of creation is like that. So it's transient, keeps wasting away. It needs some, uh, like a, a qualitative transformation, not just a little patchwork. So, like I said, we were enjoying Hawaii and the big island. Um, was, I, I felt like a kid in a candy store. Like, my wife will tell you that. And it's not because I like the sun on the beach. With this skin tone, me laying on the beach is not a good idea, okay? <laughs> I've seen the dermatologist enough as it is. No, for me, I got there, I probably spent hours and hours reading um, on the geology of the big island, on the volcanology of the island. We're passing through lava flows, and I'm just like... This is amazing. It's like, how long ago did this happen? I'm looking all this stuff up. And, of course, there's the beautiful fish and the snorkeling and all that kind of stuff. And there's mountains. And, and we, we got to see the lava actually spewing out of Kilauea's. Amazing. Right? But then I read other stuff. I just listened to this. The big island is sinking. Did you know that? It's so heavy. It actually is one little article I read, it, it actually pushed the ocean floor down eight kilometers. It's so heavy. And it's slowly sinking. And the ones that are no longer active and building themselves are slowly eroding. So at some point in history, depending on how hi history goes in the future, all of them are going to disappear. So here's the good news according to SF Kate, all right? Slowly, and I like the title, Kiss the Hawaiian Timeshare Goodbye. <laughs> By the way, let me just back up to the verse. Don't read it. Avoid the temptation of reading what I just put up there. Okay, can you do that? Because I want you to understand, I miss verse 5 where it says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. This is a work of God. I'm making everything, not just some things, but it's all being renovated but with a completely different quality to it. So slowly, slowly, the big island of Hawaii is sinking toward its doom. Good news number one. From its palm-fringed beaches to the summit of Mount Mauna Kea, 13,796 feet high, nothing will remain of that volcanic island but a small stony lump on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in the far northwest thousands of miles from where it stands today. Okay, let's just be real. They get it right. Eventually, the island paradise is going to slip into a watery grave. Is that it? That's the quality of the world in which we live. It's transient. It's subject to futility and decay and corruption. No, when God recreates it, he's going recreate to recreate it with an entirely different quality so that it will no longer corrode in the way it does, or erode in the way it does. And we want to see islands slip into the sea, and I can see hurricanes taking out entire cities, or tornadoes, neighborhoods. You're not going to see endangered species. You're not going to see extinct species. You're, you're going to see a creation that has been made permanent. That's awesome. That's one of the reasons he has to recreate it with an entirely different quality so that it's permanent. It's not subject to decay. And the second reason is, sometimes people don't quite understand this, but this is going to be the earth. The new earth is going to be God's habitation. He's going to dwell here. The earth in its current state cannot handle the presence of Almighty God. 
you might as well try and take a piece of hot molten lava and put it into a Kleenex. You got it? The current creation cannot handle the firsthand encounter with its creator in its current state. It must be remade. So instead of being Kleenex, again, this is analogy, he's going to make all of creation like this hardened steel that can contain his presence. The new creation. Listen, the things you've come to love in this life the most, the best tastes, the best smells, the best sounds, the best conversations, best experiences, the most glorious parts of creation, that's just but a shadowy taste of what's going to unfold in the new creation. If the creation in which we live now declares the glory of God, Psalm says, then imagine a renewed, recreated creation in a permanent, eternal form. That's amazing. Now, you might say, okay, by the way, that, that, that means our final destination is not a cumulus cloud where Zeus is like flying around, right? This is a new creation. This is new heaven, new earth. But you might ask, well, wait a second. What about the sea, Dan? I mean, God made the sea, and he made sea creatures to fill the sea. So a lot of people have a hard time with this part of Revelation, and the sea was no more. Again, remember, we're dealing with some symbolic parts of the Bible, and the sea is often associated with evil. The beast rises out of the chaotic sea in chapter 13, verse 1 of Revelation. In the very last chapter we looked at two weeks ago, before Adam preached, we saw that the, that the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Death, Hades, and sea all equated means the sea in Revelation is associated with evil. So when it says the sea was no more, guess what it's saying? It's not saying that the humpback whale is going to lose its home. Or the sea turtle is going to lose its home. Or no more lobster or sea bass. It's saying evil will be eradicated completely. The place of the dead will be eradicated completely. So that's, that's the first part of this, is like part of his vision, he sees a new creation. But I want you to notice something. It's still called earth. New heavens and the new earth. It wasn't renamed Jupiter, Saturn, or I can't name the other one. It's named earth. It has the same identity. Which means there is a continuity between the earth that we experience now and the earth that we will experience when it is transposed and transformed into a completely different quality. In the same way, and Jesus' death and resurrection is the paradigm. Jesus died in a mortal body. His body could die, bleed, and suffer. He came in a weak mortal body. Though he was perfect, he came in a weak mortal body and died. But when he was raised, he was raised incorruptible. Incorruptible. No longer experiencing pain or suffering, can't die any longer. That's Jesus. He was born into a mortal body, and he was raised into an immortal, incorruptible body in the same way that we, though we live in mortal bodies now, will be resurrected in immortal, incorruptible bodies and capable of experiencing pain, and a similar thing will happen to the creation. It is a mortal, corruptible creation, but it will be raised back to life incorruptible. That is the paradigm. Again, 
Sometimes we think our final destination is heaven and people are surprised. Actually, it's earth renewed, recreated, transformed. Well, after seeing this heaven and earth remade, where evil is eradicated, John goes on to describe the next thing. He says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, adorned as a wife or prepared as a wife adorned for her husband. So he sees, like, the holy city, New Jerusalem. And that symbolizes at least two things. One, the presence of God, and two, the place where his people met with him. Like Jerusalem, the Jewish people would go up year after year, and they would go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where God was, a symbol for his presence. And Jerusalem was the place where he wanted to be in his presence. Only Jerusalem was, was, was a fallen, broken city with fallen, broken people in it. And it was just really a shadow of things to come. And, but John says, wow, the holy city, the new Jerusalem is coming down. And we're going to talk about that more next week because that's the focus of chapter 21, verses 9 and following. So let me just draw your attention to some of the other things. Notice that he sees it coming down. It's coming, coming down. What's the destination of coming down? Come on, answer me. Earth, the new earth. The place that, that symbolizes the very presence of God comes down to earth where his people will dwell with him, adorned, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And what he sees by way of a city, the holy city, he hears, I think, an interpretation of what that means. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, like the effect of Jerusalem coming down, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You see how many times the word with is in there and dwell? It's emphatic, repetitive on purpose. The culmination of all of the old promises come to fruition in this moment when God makes his dwelling amongst his people over and over with, with, with. What a great preposition. I love it. And when David says in Psalm 23, 4, you are with me. But this is no kind of with me. This is the culmination of with me, with the one who loves us the most, that so much so that he'd give his life for us, and someone that we love in return because he first loved us, we get to be with each other forever, you know? It takes my mind to the dating phase with my wife, to the marriage phase. You know, this may seem old-fashioned, I just think it's biblical morality, but we, uh, we dated, right? And after an evening hanging out together, I'd walk her to her dorm and say, good night. And, uh, and then I'd walk back to my dorm. We separated ways. We weren't with each other. Maybe in a conceptual, relational sense, but not physically present with each other. I remember saying, I do at the altar. And then we stayed in the first house that we had, Lamp Park, Sacramento. And I remember laying there going, I feel like I should take you home. <laughs> I'm supposed to drop you off at your parents' house, right? But one of the things about the covenant of marriage is that it binds you together for life so that you're with each other. Maybe not always physically, but the idea is that you're with each other 
Did you notice the marriage terminology in this? New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband? As I've said previously, I can't think of a better celebration in human experience than a wedding. If the two people are good people and love each other and so forth. Then it's, it's spectacular. And that's kind of the, the connotation is like, what humans have longed for the most to be in the presence of God. And like, this is the moment. And it has this sense of euphoric celebration. The presence of God with his people, never to end. That's the idea of covenant. This is like the heart of all of the covenants in the Bible. God with his people and his people with God. Only at this point, it never ends. There's no parting ways. I know that's hard to get your mind around, like, because we can't see with our eyes yet. Let me put it this way. If you remember, I don't know if they taught you to do this in school, but when there were eclipses of the sun, and they'd say, hey, poke a hole in the paper and go out and look at it, right? I've read since then that's not a good idea. You'll still burn your eyes out, <laughs> right? But because the sun is so powerful, and so you just pop a print hole and try to look. I remember doing that as a kid. And um, again, not an idea, so that this is, this is a don't do if you happen to be a young person here or an old person. Um, but if you were to pop a tiny hole between the veil that now separates a holy God and this creation and ourselves, and if you could just peek for a second, you wouldn't just burn your eyeball. You'd cease to exist. You got that? The reason I say that is because Moses said, hey, can I see you? And God said, nope. Because if you see my face, guess what? You're going to die. That's what's going to happen. No one can see my face and live. No sinful person can, even if they love me, can see me and live. Not even through a pinhole. We're told that even angels cover their eyes in the presence of God. But at this point, God is going to equip us and fashion us in a way that we can live within his full presence and experience the joy of being with him firsthand. Chapter 22 says, and they will see the face of God. What Moses didn't get to see, what angels covered their eyes, we get to see his people. If you got to spend one second in the presence of the Lord, that would be a a gift beyond measure if you got to spend five minutes with God it would be indescribable an eternity with God Jesus didn't just die to cleanse or purify our moral dirty laundry he did but he did it to equip us so we could behold the one and only almighty creator of heaven and earth and experience him forever there's no way of getting your mind around how big that is how big is the gospel huge three these get shorter by the way God will console his people perfectly or completely. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor pain, for the former things have passed away. That's consolation. You notice the, the details of the text. It's always in the details. 
He, who's the he? He's the one on the throne who's speaking. He will wipe away their tears, every tear from their eyes. He doesn't send an angel to do it. He doesn't send an angel third class that hasn't got his wings yet to do it. He does it himself. Like you, you recognize this as the same God who got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples? The same God who was mounted on a cross to suffer and die to cleanse us? He wipes away every tear. Perfect consolation. Notice there's no pain and crying and so forth anymore. That means it's permanent. Consolation. We try to console each other, and we should. God consoled people with the consolation he was given. But you know, consolation oftentimes is it's just it doesn't fix things, does it? So I had a conversation with a person this last week who lost her spouse and her adult child within two days of each other in the last month. I'm just going to share with you, that's a hard conversation for me to have because I don't know what to say. I can't say I can sympathize with you, because I can't. I can't say I can understand what you're going through, because I can't. I can offer my deepest condolences, but it doesn't help her. It doesn't take away the pain. The best we can do is say whatever ever best words can come to our minds and be there, cry and pray. Consolation in this life never, like, fixes it. But God's consolation, like when he wipes the tear, all of those deep pains that we carry along, those losses that you still carry, the aches that never go away, those are completely and utterly satisfied and wiped out where there's no more sadness. At the darkest moments of your life, those things that you still carry, you wonder, when is it going to go away? When is the grief going to end? When am I going to be able to laugh and smile again? Permanently wiped out because God does this. That's the God we have. That's, that's, that's the new creation. It's like this brand new home that's of an eternal quality with the presence of God where he wipes out all of the hurts and pains. That's a pretty awesome place if you ask me. It's way better than the good news according to NBC. Or San Francisco Gate. It's like, there is no good news, honestly, with a secular worldview where God is deleted from the equation. Where God is in the equation, this is the end. Fourth, the guarantee. Like, to, to what do we attach, like, our hope? Probabilities, wishes, hopes. Christians and Jews before us always anchored their hope in the word of God. What he says about himself. And that's exactly what the Lord does right here. It's like, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It is done, past tense. As if it's already a foregone conclusion that this has happened, even though it's future. That's certainty. I am the Alpha, which means I'm the beginning and before all things, and I'm the Omega. I am 
after in the completer of all things, and therefore the one who manages everything in between. If I started in Genesis 1 to build a world for my people that share my or bear my image, then I will complete that mandate and finish what I started, and I will fill the world with people who are conformed to the image of my son, Jesus Christ. God is the finisher of what he starts. He's 100% in terms of the success rate of what he starts, which is personally really assuring. If he started you on the journey of the Christian life, that is, you came to faith and trust in Christ as your Savior and to pin your hopes on him and trust that he's paid the way fully for you to be here, he's going to finish it. Praise the Lord for that. Because sometimes we don't feel like it's going to get finished, but he'll finish the process with us. I am the Alpha. Let's not forget who is making these promises. And last is just a reward that's given to those who, who thirst and who conquer, or the other translation is overcome. I love this. To the one who thirsts, or to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God and he will be my son. Two descriptors. Thirsty and the one who conquers. Thirsty and the one who overcomes the challenges of life by faith. Thirsty. Thirsty for what? Well, the reward is in line with the thirst. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. Psalm 36, verse 9, the psalmist says, With you, God, is the fountain of water of life. Jeremiah 17, verse 13, calls the Lord the fountain of living water. Jesus taught us in John chapter 4 that God's presence and spirit is living water. The living water is God himself. That is, if, if you're thirsty for God... Like, you've recognized that as, as good as these things might be in the world around us, and there are good things. You know, I got to go to a band competition yesterday and watch my youngest perform, and they won their sweepstakes, and I'm not going to lie, I teared up a whole bunch. Big softy. I just, I love that moment. I hope someday that I'll be a grandfather. I'm surprised I'm actually saying that out loud, but <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. But you need to understand that all those things you can't hold on to. I can't, you can't. Everything disintegrates. Everything changes. But are you thirsty for God? For something that doesn't change? Something that satisfies? That is, he's, he says, to the one who's thirsty for me, guess what? In the new creation, I'm turning on the fire hydrant. You get as much of me as you want. Life to the fullest. You won't be able to contain how much life I'm going to gush into you. But also to those who overcome. It's a major word in this whole book, to overcome. A number of enemies to God's people, of the beast that persecutes, or the false prophet who lies, or the harlot who seduces. To the one who looks to Jesus, trusts in Christ, and follows him, and aligns their life with him, he will be my son, God says. You're like, wait, I thought I already was God's son. Well, you are. God has already declared you righteous if you have faith in him and he considers you a son. 
But this is the full and final realization of that. Right now, we look at ourselves and look at each other and like, really, you're a son of God? <laughs> I'm a son of God. I just lost my temper with my kid. How could I possibly be a son of God? And right now, you don't look like a son of God either because you're acting selfishly. Like, we still struggle with our sin and so forth. We're not there yet. And we struggle and we doubt. But on this day, we're going to look at each other and go, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're definitely a son of God. Like, you reflect him. Not just spiritually and morally, but physically too. You've been conformed to the image of Jesus. And he, Jesus, our firstborn, our older brother, as it were. And one of a kind, by the way, he's the only God-man who will ever live. We will never achieve that status. Our older brother has shared his sonship with us. So that one day we will stand in that honored position, fully and completely glorified. We will look at each other, we'll look at God and look at Jesus and go... Yes, we belong in the fullest sense right here, right now. And it reflects on everything I see. It's a reward. So let me just conclude this with reflection. What should this do to you? How they kind of bring it down? Like, I think it's a marvelous vision of the future. Like I said, way better than what this secular world view is going to offer you. And this one's grounded in history, grounded in archaeology, and grounded in the Word of God, most importantly. One of the implications, I think, of this is, and I'm going to use a food illustration. Since thirst was used, I think hunger could be used too. Is this kind of vision, and by the way, I rehearse this every week. Not because I'm more spiritual than anybody else, but because I need to be reminded of it. And because I'm needy enough that I need it every week. That is Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 8 that it intensifies our longing for the entree of life. You know, you go to a nice restaurant. Unless you're going to a tapas place, rarely do you go, I'm going to go fill, my, fill myself up on appetizers. If you're, if you're that kind of person who just wants appetizers all the time, you're weird and just work, work with me on this, okay? <laughs> Usually there's, there's a main course, right? You're like, I really love the steaks, how they do them up at the buckhorn. So we're going to go up there, not to have the appetizers, but to have the steak. That's the idea, the entree, the, the main course. That's what you go for. The appetizer is just a little teaser. For, for, for us, the, the main course is not now. This isn't the main course of life. What you're experiencing, all the wonders and joys and so forth, because it's filled with sorrows and pains also. And you can't keep it. Sometimes, however, you see a person and they're like, this life seems like even though they profess a belief in the future hope, functionally speaking, they're really living for the entree here and now. And when it starts to disappear, they come apart. Because the hope of the Christian life really, really is kind of like this dangling, nice, comfortable thing to have out there, but it's not the main course. Right now is. We have to flip that. And part of the reason is because maybe we're just comfortable. We live in a wealthy country and things are easy for us. And so it's like, wow, this is the main course. I'm enjoying my life. It's not the main course. And as soon as you make it the main course, guess what? Your life's going to come apart when you lose something, what you love. And you're not going to be faithful to Jesus either because you're going to keep trying to hold on to stuff and you're going to make this world your God. Rather than recognizing, okay, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, this life is an appetizer right now. That's, that's what it is. And it's not just a, an awesome appetizer. It's, it's more like Funyuns, you know? You ever had Funyuns? <laughs> I was thinking of, well, what could I possibly use? It's like a tasty, empty nothing. And I only say that in comparison to the main course. I'm not saying watching my son win a band competition isn't important. What I'm saying is in compared to what's ahead, it really is Funyuns. And I have sat beside people's bed who were leaving this life. And I wanted to share, I, I share this passage almost every time because I want them to know the life you lived and you enjoyed is but a small taste of what's to come. And somehow, by the Spirit of God, we have to make what's future the main course, not now. Amen? Yeah. Let me make one final comment, because there's a moral dimension to this too. The overcomer, the one who conquers, you know this marriage image? Like when you're engaged to be married, you don't flirt with other people, right? You don't. Because there's someone you love. You're, you have a date on the calendar. You're like, you know what? We're going to choose to spend and save our money because we want to live in an apartment and we want to do what we're going to do and have a nice honeymoon and you don't have eyes for other people. And it, 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 the, the, the future culmination of the wedding, the, the covenant, actually shapes everything that you do in the same way that this hope is supposed to shape everything that we do. It has a purifying sense to it. We're like, guess, guess what? There's... There's a wedding date on the calendar where God and his people are going to be forever together. And that's what I'm living for. So if I have to say no to the harlot, chapter 17, then I'm saying no to her because I want him. Then I'm going to say no to the sinful appetizers that are presented to me. Why? Because I'm looking forward to the city whose architect and builder is God. So it ought to have a moral like impetus in helping us to remain true and faithful to Christ in this life, because in the end, it will be worth it. Amen. Amen. Gracious God, we uh, just ask that you take this sword of your word and divide marrow from bone, awaken within your people, or expand our love for the hope that's been set before us that's a guarantee, it's not a wish. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.